I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling the modern urban existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you're listening for the first time, I just want to welcome you to this journey, this first season, uh, this community that we're hopefully building as we are starting to re-examine really every aspect of our urbanized, industrialized, technologized modern life to hopefully uncover a more meaningful, more innately human existence in the 21st century. So I was up in Bend, Oregon with my family for the past two weeks over the holidays, and it was it was really amazing. Uh, we got so much of the time in nature, in the woods that I've really been longing for, as you know if you've been listening all along, in my day-to-day life here in L.A., We went hiking, we went to state parks. Uh, My kids were outside for hours every day in the fresh cold air. They had little roses back in their cheeks again. Um, You know, we went to the local organic bakery every morning and picked up our slow fermented baguettes. And you can go to any supermarket there with your growler and fill it up with local beer. And, you know, there's so much natural beauty there everywhere you look. And it's amazing to see a place where preservation of the landscape for really everyone to enjoy, not just people uh, with the means to do so, um, where that's really such a priority. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens because as Bend grows as a city and a lot of people start moving there, probably some of you might be looking at it now after (laughs) I'm talking it up. Um, You know, like a lot of small cities around the country now, I read there that Bend is actually expected to add some 30,000 new residents in the coming decade. Um, It's going to be interesting to see, will they be able to do that while continuing to prioritize the natural environment and to grow with sustainability in mind? But so anyway, I'm digressing because my real takeaway from the trip was a question, which is, could I live somewhere like that year round? Um, And the short answer is yes. (laughs) It's a pretty great quality of life. But if I live there year round, would it fulfill this longing that I have for something deeper than the existence that I know we're headed for in the 21st century? Um, I know that being around so much natural beauty would mitigate a lot of the frustration and the massive societal ills that I encounter on a daily basis living here in LA. And some of that being up in Bend and having that day-to-day connection to nature, I know it would help alleviate some of that and would certainly improve my mental health. But I suspect that I and, you know, all of us, no matter where we live, even if you're in a rural area and you're listening to this now, we are all up against the same things. The increased virtualization of the work that we do, um, the isolation that I have and so many of us feel from being separated so far away from our families, and really the loss of the nuclear family in the modern age. And, you know, I don't know that I would be able to get away from the fact that modern day education, the education of my kids is now focused around preparing for this increasingly automated and technologized world and and the increased amount of screen time that 
we have in schools and the effects of that on their health and mental well-being and, and so on and so on. And so I don't really know what the answer is. Um, but that's why I'm doing the show, because the people who I'm speaking with do have answers. And they are all approaching really this vast topic of rewilding in the urban environment from their own unique way. So that brings me to today's guest, today's show with our guest, uh, survivalist Christopher Niergesch, who is the founder of the School of Self-Reliance in Los Angeles. Some of you may know his name already. Um, he was on the National Geographic show Doomsday Preppers a few years back. But he's, as you're going to hear, he is certainly way more than a tiny slice of reality TV could possibly convey. Christopher has been teaching about wild foods, survival, self-reliance, uh, ecology awareness in LA since 1974. And he's also a prolific writer. He's written more than 20 books on foraging, on the skills of self-reliance, um, including How to Survive Anywhere, Guide to Wild Foods and Useful Plants, Foraging California, and Extreme Simplicity Homesteading in the City. And so I'm telling you more about him than I normally would before I jump into the interview portion of the show, because I actually took a different approach to the show today. Unlike my usual show, where you know I record an interview, usually via Skype, and the guest and I are in two separate locations, I actually stepped away from my computer and went out into the field with Christopher up near the Saint San Gabriel Mountains. So it's kind of ironic that I'm doing this show about reconnecting with the natural world, and I'm actually sitting here behind a screen. So this was a really nice break from that. Um, and so the episode you're going to hear today is actually twofold. So first is this plant walk where I'm out in the field with Christopher, and I, I hope you get to enjoy this virtual experience of being in one of his classes. And then the second part is where we get into this pretty deep conversation that focuses on this big idea of the title of one of his books, but it could very well be the theme for his work and his life, which is extreme simplicity and how and why he has chosen to live this truly Spartan existence in the midst of a city where materialism can be all consuming. He's had a fascinating life. Um, and the people who know Christopher in the world of rewilding really know him as someone you would definitely want to be around for when the apocalypse hits, just because he's been practicing, practicing all these skills in the city for so long. But as you're going to hear, he really doesn't have a doomsday mentality at all. And so I, I had such a great time being out in the field with him. There is so much to learn from what he says here, so much also to hopefully get you inspired to find someone near you to get out on a plant walk and to learn more about the wild foods right beneath your feet. Because I really do think it starts to change your mindset, not only about our relationship to nature, but also our relationship to consumption and what we want versus what we really need. So that's it from me. And I hope you enjoy this episode out in the urban wild. And I will see you next Monday with a new episode. So we're looking at a plant with long leaves and wavy margins. And this is a, a European native called curly dock. Uh, if people use French sorrel, they might know this plant. It, it actually is a little bit sour. Okay. You want to taste a little? I do. I was going to take out a picture, but it's probably... It's a little... I'm chewing on it. It's a little sour. As it gets older... Oh, it's, wow. That's really sour. But, but there's a bit of bitterness to it, too. So, so I... It's lemony. Yeah. I would use this sparingly in a salad. 
Okay. Yeah, uh, it's it's very high in vitamin A, but normally I cook it, I saute it, or cook it with other things, tomatoes, onions, this, whatever. So it's called curly dock. It, it, in the fall, it sends up this huge spike, and the seeds turn brown, and they look like uh, coffee seeds. And then we strip those off, and we blend it with flour, and we make bread. And now, what does blending this with the flour do to the bread? Like well. This, the, the, the curly dock seeds don't have any gluten. Oh, so it's any. like a grain. Gluten seed, is like yep. glue. Yeah. You, yeah. We, we harvest the seeds or the okay. grains. And if you ground it really fine, you could make little crackers. Okay. But just as a matter of convenience, we'll add amaranth or potato or wheat flour yeah. half and half with the curly dock seeds and make, make pancakes or bread. Oh, fine. Yeah, yeah. And how much of this would you have to harvest? Well, there's just a, this single one here right now, but down in the wet areas... There's so much, it's unbelievable. I mean, I see people come down, Armenian people, and they use it for medicine. Yeah. And they harvest big bags of this stuff. So they still have that knowledge. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, do. Yeah, they know what and, it is. And, and nobody minds here because this is more of a natural park, and this is an in, the Curly Dock is an introduced European weed. Yeah. So it's okay to get, get it out of here. It's eat, eat the invasives. Yeah, so I get just, when, when I go collect, I just collect what we're using for our meal. I don't uproot it, I just leave it alone. Yeah. If somebody wants it gone, I'll let, let them remove it. But I, I generally don't do that. I know you probably hate this question, but how how much of your diet would you say is foraged, wild? Uh, it really varies from time to time, but it's it probably no more than 10 or 15%. There are times when it's a higher percentage. I remember when I was in Highland Park, from our yard and foraged, we pro- probably were using 75% from, from, from what we grew and what we harvested. Wow. But it's probably, you know, it's just a small percentage. I add it to everything right now. Okay, this one here is also a European native. You notice how barren it is? A lot of the natives are just dried up right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, right now we're looking at pretty much a grove of trees and oak dirt. Trees. Oak yeah. trees. These are oak trees. These are California live oaks, right? Yeah, coast live oaks. Coast live oaks. And we'll probably see some acorns somewhere. We have. Uh, we went hiking this weekend and we saw some acorns. Yeah. 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 But the rest, I mean, we're looking, this is dried it's leaves very and dry. dirt. This is typical late October. Okay. And this guy is a mint. Can you see how it's a mint? Square stem. I never would have noticed that was but look, a mint. See, there's a very typical mint leaf. People who garden will look at this and say, eh, isn't that kind of a mint? Then you smell it, and it has no mint odor. So this one is called whorehound. It's a bitter mint. It's not used like a pleasant tea. It's used more for coughs and sore throats. And to oh, yeah, I've seen that in lozenges before. Correct. Yeah. So, so okay, now, when you buy the lozenges, where did you see of them? At a supermarket? You, no, I, that actually the whorehound comes from some recipe I saw for okay. making your own lozenges. Okay, so nobody really does that much anymore. Yeah. But when I saw these at a supermarket, it, I read the ingredients and it was artificial flavoring and sugar. Now, <laughs> My, Michael's Floral Supply sells whorehound candy made from whorehound. Wow. If you want to go buy them. But I, I've, okay, I've I'll cook, post a link to that as well. That's yeah, really I've cooked fun. this down before. I have a recipe in my Guide to Wild Food book and we made uh, candy. And it's okay if you like it. You know, it's mostly sugar you're eating. Can you eat it raw or is it weird? Try it. If you had a cough or sore throat, you can chew on it. It's going to be very bitter. You won't like it, but it will be effective. If you know, I I only make the tea if I'm desperate, because it is very effective. Yeah, it's strong. It's strong, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not what you consider a food. Mm. We might see one or two other things over here. Okay.
because I'm a person from the modern world, I always have this fear I'm going to eat something and have like an allergic reaction. Do you get that a lot from people? Hi. Sorry to disturb you. you. Uh, Well, yeah, but but the thing is... Are people nervous about this in your classes when they try? There's a guy, well, many people that have said, okay, we've got to learn all the poisonous stuff so I can avoid them. And I said to them, you know, you don't need to know a single poisonous thing. You don't need to know a single poisonous plant. All you need to know is the no. identity of what you're eating. If you don't know what it is, don't eat it. And, and the, you know, he, the guy wasn't satisfied because he wanted to know uh, he wanted to know what the poisonous plants were. But if you, if you only know what you're eating, or at least start with that, then you're okay. Yeah. Don't eat the things that are not, yeah. that are not edible. Let's, I'm just looking for a green around here. There's not a lot. That whorehound definitely left out like an astringent Sorry about taste. that. Oh, no, it's, it's kind of fun. Okay, now... Because of the drought, they started putting in sprinklers around these oak trees, so we, we get some green growth that we probably would not normally have right now. Okay. So... Do you mind if I get you in the shot here? I don't mind. Okay, great. This is chickweed. So chickweed is another European native. Okay, and... It's very easy for people to recognize. You've got the opposite leaves. And uh, do you want to take a good look at one? Yeah. You have a line of white hairs along one side of the stalk. Can you see those fine oh, hairs? Oh, yeah. One line, and each leaf comes to a tip. There is a look-alike in this case that does not have the line of hairs, that okay. has a white sap when you break the stem, and that's uh, spurge, common spurge. Yeah. Is that the same as leafy spurge that's taken over half of the West, or no? Um, I don't know that name, leafy spurge. Is I, prostrate spurge? Uh, I don't know. I just know there's some kind of spurge that's invasive that's, like, destroyed mm-hmm. half of Montana, I think. Uh, I, I don't know. Okay, but, but so but this it's is... it's probably related if it's yeah. a spurge. Spurge has a white milky sap. They're all euphorbias, okay. typically. But there is one that look that's confused with this sometimes. And if you put it in your salad and you ate enough of it, you'd vomit. Whereas the chickweed is delicious. It's mild. It's great in salad, great in soups. Uh, I use all that I can when it's in season. And when's it usually in season? In the springtime after the rains. It's but all, it's fall here now. Because it's got water. Because of the water. This is Southern California. Okay, so if you water it, it will grow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Amish use the chickweed for a uh, salve for insect bites. And so you could actually just take the leaf, crush it, rub it on it, mosquito bite that it irritates, and it's very effective. Wow. Yeah. Can I, I think, try this? Yeah, try yeah. it right okay. now. I put it in salads all the time. You can just make a salad of just this. Kind of like yeah. green peas, maybe. Mm. You know, mild flavor. Very mild. Mm-hmm. Tastes my, very fresh. It's one of my favorite plants. Yeah. You can find it pretty much everywhere in the United States. Okay. These books that I wrote on Oregon, Washington, Idaho. Yeah. The chickweed is always there. And you said you're working on one right now in Idaho. I just finished it, You yeah. did just finish it. What's It'll the name of it? Foraging Idaho. Foraging Idaho. It'll be it'll be out in early 20, 2008 or no to 2018. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything that I'm probably not here, but that you forage regularly that's like heartier cal- calorie wise? Yeah. Because well, it's a lot of salad well, stuff. Ca- calorie, calorie is going to be from seed or uh, fruit, and uh, there is a let's walk a little bit further. There is some um, lamb's quarter. People might know it as quinoa. They like to, I call it wild quinoa. Because all, they all eat the um, that South American seed. Lamb's quarter is a European native. That um, the the caloric count would be from the seed. 
and the um, the leaf is high in all of the vitamins and minerals. I thought we would see some, but maybe we won't. By the way, I will say it's it's amazing. We've already done what three plants? We've walked how far have we walked? Well, we haven't walked very far. Like two minutes. But but after the rains come, this place is like a garden. It's full of mushrooms. We could have fed 15 people walking this far if this was like February or March. Wow. See, we took the, I took the class here uh, with Sean Critchfield in the spring, mm-hmm. in the summer, and it was so hot and dry. Mm. We didn't really see much. Oh, we saw a lot of wild radishes. More chickweed, and before you oh, don't step there. Sorry. This guy, most people think it's a dandelion. Yeah, I would have thought that was. And it has a similar appearance. It's related to the dandelion, but it gets tall. So this one is called sow thistle, S-O-W thistle, sow thistle, sow thistle. Like a pig. Like, like pig, a pig, because people, my pig loved it. It's a, it's a tender plant, it's, it's good even when it gets mature. You have a little bit of white sap in the stem, Yeah. but you can taste it. It's, it's a hint of bitterness, but it's probably yeah. the closest thing to lettuce you're going to find in the wild. This feels very L.A. right now. We've got police driving by past this park while we're tasting South Thistle? Well, there's some kind of police activity going on today. I don't know what it is, but that whole action area is Yeah, I saw too. that. And, you know, they had shut down the entire 5 freeway. So I had to come this whole... They did? Ramp. Yeah. For what reason? The 5... Well, I don't know about the whole freeway, but the whole on-ramp. So that's South Thistle. Oh. You can use the root uh, and cook it. You can eat the leaves, raw or cooked. Let's look over here. It this tastes is, very nutritious. Yeah. it's Again, you asked about calories. That's where, you know, grains and things come in handy. Yeah. That's another South Thistle. Oh, see, that looks different. Mm-hmm. Well, it's bigger. There's okay, more to yeah. it right now. This is actually a black walnut tree. This tiny little thing? Yeah, the, the squirrels probably brought the walnut up here. That probably won't survive. Oh. It's about a foot tall. Probably been here for two years now. So you and said you have, a, you have a journalist background, but you also have a bo- background in botany? I, you, or you, how did you learn about all of this? I took botany classes. You did take botany. I understudied okay. with, uh, the, the, I, I, I call him the best botanist that nobody knows. He was from um, Estonia, Dr. Leonid Inari. He was uh, re, uh, employed by the L.A. County Arboretum, and he taught botany and ethnobotany classes and edible poisonous medicinal plant classes through Pasadena City College. And I, I took all of his courses, and I um, uh, more or less understudied with him for a while and would go to his office with things and ask him questions and he helped me with my first book. Wow. So uh, I took, I've taken botany classes and mycology classes at UCLA at Pasadena City College and through private lectures and wherever I could. Let me just make sure. You know I was homeless for a while. I was a squatter for a year and a half. I wrote books about those experiences too. So tell me about that. How, when were you homeless? We're on, right? We're on. Okay. um, I was homeless after a divorce with my first marriage and uh, I would have to say that I always wondered how homeless people got by you know I would go downtown LA back in the day when they were all in cardboard boxes and I thought my god what a what a terrible existence on the flip side I would go backpacking with very little and but then I'd always come back to the city but I'd go backpacking with very little and learn how to live frugally and I thought why can't people who are homeless be somewhat you know, nomadic and learn more skills. But but then I learned that the problem isn't that they they don't. The problem is that they're drinking and getting high and they're making a lot of mistakes. I mean, I hate or to, they have I, mental illness. Yeah, or, yeah I mean, yeah. so I'm hate. I hate to generalize. I've met a few guys that are just they really don't want to work. 
and the but but those guys who are homeless, you don't find them down on Skid Row. So, but when I was homeless, nobody really knew about it except a few close friends. My family didn't know about it, and it was a it was an interesting experience to not have a place to that you can definitively call home each night. But I had already been teaching survival skills uh, classes for ten years or so because it's it's always been my life interest. So I knew where the foods were. I knew how to in the urban environment how to buy food cheap. I knew how to live or, and and travel flat. That means to say, so I have all my stuff. I would wear a vest and I didn't have a pack, so I didn't stick out like a like a backpacker walking on urban streets. Wow. I knew how to buy flat stuff and carry things, and I lived. Um, part of the time in parks and part of the time in backyards and most of the time in a cellar of a house where nobody knew I was living there. I, sl- I strung up a hammock each night and, and, and you know, eating on the fly. You know, the problems of a homeless person are, are really the, the same things that everybody faces normally. You, you want to, uh, you, you have to use a toilet, you need to stay clean, you eat. Um, and it's nice to be able to do that under one roof. And so th- to do that moving around is very challenging and I would have to say that you know I mean I wasn't taking drugs I wasn't my problem was just bad choices yeah so tell me what so how did this happen how did you become homeless um, let's just say I became homeless I I mean I don't really care to go into the details okay yeah but uh, But your background was that you had already been teaching these skills and you knew you know you had this I I was teaching wilderness skills but let's let's not kid ourselves like a lot of the stuff on TV that you see that's wilderness survival a lot of these shows they thrust people into the wilderness that is an entirely different skill set than what a homeless person generally would use unless that so-called homeless person chooses a nomadic lifestyle in a wilderness setting so in the urban setting it's very different Uh, we are not uh, um, uh, rambos in the city in the city you need friends and so in my case through the uh, through the goodwill of friends and because I always learned how to lead with an offer not what can you do for me what can I do for you first to help yeah. fulfill my need I'm thinking about you before I'm thinking about me and that was really quite a quite a learning experience to realize that yes I could get my needs met as long as I looked out for the other person first and I, in fact after I um, after I was no longer homeless that lasted for about six months I rented a warehouse for a while then I, then I had a house rental and I bought another house, you know, over the course of another year or two. But I was able to apply in the real world setting some of the things that I would preach and actually said I believed in. And, and one of them was, you know, in, in fact, some of them are in my Extreme Simplicity book. I talk sort of uh, obliquely about my homeless experience. And this is like how principles for living economically in the city. That's what my Extreme Simplicity book is about. And I mentioned some of the ideas, sometimes you hear these uh, idealistic phrases from preachers and from people on TV and self-motivational people, but what does it actually mean in my day-to-day life? So I found that if I lead with an offer, uh, some, suddenly somebody's realizing, well, this is a guy, he's not just preoccupied with himself. And then th- th- they w- we would do things. Your interactions with other people are your solution to everything. It's not acquiring stuff. People think that the solution to our problems is having more things, and it's not. That's a problem, not a solution. And you're not just talking about our day-to-day, like the, living in the materialistic world. You're also talking about, it sounds like, the doomsday preppers who think that they need guns and water and a shelter. I mean, is that what you're talking about? I'm t- okay, I'm, I'm talking in a very general way. I had learned principles 
of, uh, how shall we put it, higher living, let's say, from my various studies. And, um, and here was a case where I had no home, and I was, I was never on the street as such, but I, my adversity was such that I could apply these principles and see if they actually work. So I tried to make every place better for my having been there. Yeah. That's, real, that's called appreciation. Okay, I tried to put these things, I tried to um, actually tithe or give to a nonprofit or a church of my choice, even when I had next to nothing. Wow. I tried, and I, I think I have five or six of those things that I, uh, I uh, listed in the book, but my, my point is that it, they're principles that apply to everyday life. The fact that I was homeless merely meant I got another view of the world and another view of other people. I got to see who the people, there were people who had the face of friends who were not friends, in a real sense. There were people who I just were kind of nebulous who were true friends. And you learn that in adversity. Yeah. So in adversity, you actually learn a lot. So my always, my, my thing that I tell people is, you see on my business card, where there is no, where there is no pain, there is no gain. No, that's not the phrase I use, is it? There's no pain. <laughs> that's the, the um, what do I even use? Um, I think that's what Sean is, always where, says. Where, no, pain no, is the no, touchstone no, of spiritual progress. No, that's that's what I, that's that's the slogan. That's the mantra you hear. Where there is no struggle, there is no merit. That is to say, and that, I got that from a martial arts teacher. That is to say, if you are given everything on a silver spoon, you don't appreciate it. Like a lot of the young children of rich people, uh, they throw everything away. They don't know what it took to get it. They so, have no sense of appreciation. Yeah. It's so interesting you say this because I come to this whole world. You know, first about really being concerned about environmental issues, and then really being fascinated with like simple living. And I'm very into um, paring stuff down mm-hmm. because I was raised by a single mom, and yeah. we were, you know, like I had to share a room with my brother. Right. And then, like my husband and I, when we first moved to LA, we were struggling musicians, mm-hmm. um, and we had to keep downsizing apartments. And every time we downsized, and every time we moved, we were like, "Why do we need all this stuff?" So right. I, it's interesting that I, I wonder if people get to this place of like. You know where you are starting to. Well, I don't know self-reliance, outdoor skills, or whatever. But I wonder if people. Do you think people come to that place if they've never come against, you know, come up against adversity? Everybody's a little different. Like, where do your um, students it, come from? Every, are they like? Well, they come from all over. Yeah. They really come from all walks of life and all ages. I get. I mean, really, I get people who are wealthy. I get people who are poor. I get homeless. I didn't realize I had a following among certain homeless people. Wow. And there was a homeless guy, uh, in fact, a couple that had, that one of them carried this book, one of them carried this book. They carried my books with them. And I said, wow, I didn't think that was my audience. The one guy, he had this How to Survive Anywhere book. It was all marked up with all of these things. He said, oh, yeah, this has really been helping me. I thought, wow, that's, that's good to hear that, that at least one person told me it actually did some benefit to them. That's amazing. You know? So um, everybody comes to uh, an awareness of the world and their the things that they do in a different way I mean and, and so there's no one way my mother however was um, a daughter of a farmer so when she grew up in Cleveland Ohio or outside in Chardon Ohio really outside of Cleveland they knew that that it took work to produce food so in her eyes and in her upbringing you don't waste food in fact you don't waste anything your you, you store wasn't like a thing you just run down and got stuff like you do today and with all these stores and this vast abundance everywhere. They, they made their clothing, they grew their food, they raised their chickens. So, so teaching us in a large family, we had uh, five boys and one girl in a, really a smallish house in Pasadena, 
uh, you you didn't waste food. You didn't play with your food. You ate your food. You didn't. Uh, you know, you, it's like the old Marine saying: "You take all you want, but eat all you take." <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, food was sacred, and because they, they knew people during the Depression who died because there was the Dust Bowl. And there was the the stock market crash because of all the fraudulent That's what I was activity. Ask. Your mom, your mom, was she a child of the depression, or was she already? What year were you? Born? Well, let's see. I was born in '55. The depression was in the late '30s, and then, you know, and so she was probably still living. She was probably in nursing school during the depression. Okay. She became an RN. She was a young woman. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she's she they my both my parents passed away about 15 years ago, uh, but I would say uh, so so they would talk about the, those stories and that always influenced me. Um, when I it's I actually have always been what you'd call a minimalist. Uh, I I've I've lived in a rural area. I liked it a lot. There were there was not the amount of mental stimulation and social stimulation that I prefer in the farm. So, I mean, I did go to my grandfather's farm after high school. That was the rural area you're talking about? The rural area, where In my Cleveland. mother grew up. Well, east, it's east, 17 miles east of Cleveland. It's pretty rural still to this day. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Jaga County, Ohio. You get a little further south, and it's all Amish territory. Um, but I've always been frugal, partly because I, did, I, I really, uh, I've had regular jobs. I, I get them periodically. I love working, but I hate a regular job where you have to sit somewhere and do something. And so what that meant was I, in order to, uh, to not feel like a prisoner, I had, to be, I had to force myself to be frugal so the money that I get lasts longer. Yep. And I've like, actually, I, every time I've moved, I thought, what is all this stuff? And I give stuff away and donate it and recycle it. And we have far more than we ever need or will use. And I think it's a mental sickness to accumulate far more than you can possibly use. Now... Uh, and I, I mean, there are some very excessive people. Uh, I, I'm not trying to criticize anybody because I have a lot of people in my close circle that have so much stuff; it's unbelievable. Well, and I, th- I think people don't realize it. I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but I don't. I don't. I think it's such a part of our culture and the society we've created that most people don't realize that it's just well, there, insidious. There's different reasons for storing things. Like my father stored unbelievable stuff, but he grew out of the depression and he knew that. Uh, like he actually would store, among other things, the lint from the the uh, the little heater filter, and thinking that maybe one day he could stuff pillows with it or something. And we used to just we threw wow. all that stuff away after he died. But you know he but he grew up in an era in an era of of lack and of want, and in many parts of the world it's still like that. So I'm not saying be wasteful, but you don't need to acquire the stuff in the first place. We are we drive. We drive the uh, the mining and the manufacturing uh, of products with with re- limited resources by our desire to get rich and to have more stuff, and it's ruining the earth. And so the reality is, uh, I mean, I watch, I look at trash cans on trash day. I look at the trash cans in schoolyards. People throw so much away that they didn't need to touch in the first place. So when Dolores and I wrote this book, Extreme Simplicity, it was. It was all about our, uh, and Dolores was my wife who passed away in 2008. I read about her. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> okay. And uh, we, we basically wanted to just put into practice what we believed in. And it, it, it's hard to do it in the city, but we found an old rundown place. We slowly fixed it up. We had solar electricity, uh, little by little, solar water heating. We raised animals. We had raised worms. 
uh, we, we collected rainwater. We did all of the things on a small scale that we felt anybody could do. And at the end of it, we thought, if we could do this on practically no budget, I mean, I had regular different jobs and some regular work. And, and this was in Los Angeles? This was in Highland Park, yeah. In Highland Park, okay. This, bo this book is all about our 20 years at that place in Highland Park. And this book is called Extreme Simplicity. Extreme Simplicity, Simplicity A Guide right. to Urban Homesteading, yeah. Right, and you've, you, you're a prolific author, and we're, I'm going to put the links to all of your books on, on the you. show notes page. Thank you. But after this came out, you know, we were giving a lot of talks at bookstores and uh, groups and homes. There is a there is a uh, organization. I think it's called Voluntary Simplicity. Does that ring a bell? It doesn't. It's something like that. Yeah. And it's where these people feel they they recognize we have way too much, and how can we minimalize, minim be a be a minimalist in our life? So I remember giving a few talks at people's homes, and I usually keep my mouth shut about these things. But I remember at one home, the guy they give their introduction about how we can pare down all the stuff, and I'm thinking, good lord, you could you could kind of outfit a little town in Mexico with all the stuff in this house, and it wasn't low quality stuff. They were, I, I think they were, and I don't think people should be guilty about being wealthy. If you're fortunate enough to have a job and an occupation that pays you well, why, why should you be guilty about it? But they weren't necessarily guilty. They just had put their money into objects, and they had lots and lots of beautiful, top-quality objects that, they, that were simply showpieces cluttering up the house. And, and uh, you know, with no purpose. With no particular purpose, uh, I, you know, I like to make my money work. I like to have things that are functional, but beyond that, I don't like clutter. I just don't like lots of stuff. I don't like trinkets. I would rather buy one good quality hammer than loads of junk from Harbor Freight that's low quality, that's going to break after you use it once or twice. No offense. Well, actually, it is an offense to Harbor Freight. Harbor Freight is mostly junk. That's why people go there. It's low cost junk, uh, like Walmart. Well, I go to Walmart sometimes because you can get a good price there. But my point being that there are people who, understandably, they work their whole life, they acquire a lot of stuff, and then they start, you know, they're comfortable, they could start thinking about their place in the world, the bigger world, because it's amazing how many people don't. They go through their life, everybody struggles on their level, and then finally they realize, God, I got everything I always wanted. I, I still feel like I want more, but I've got all this stuff, and some people have nothing. And so my whole thing was, most of the stuff I don't want in the first place. I, I prefer to have close to nothing than to have all this junk. I like to I like to be unfettered and uncluttered so that I can just function, do the thinking I like to do, and do the writing I like to do, and I teach. And uh, most people, don't, again, they don't need all that stuff. Yeah. I, I say you can put your money into other things. Put your money into the heifer project in third world countries where you give people animals that they can raise. That's giving a man a fish. You know, or the Lakota project or whatever it's called in the, in the Lakota uh, reservations in South Dakota where they're doing energy self-reliance and gardening now. You know, or put, you know, put... Or what about a program... I always think this, since we're talking about homelessness, what about a program to help teach homeless people in L.A. more the skills of self-reliance or making change right here at home? Very, too. very good idea. Always remember, you can never... Uh, I, I'm not a, uh, what you call a crusader. Maybe I'm called that, but I'm not, I don't think of myself as a crusader, nor do I think of myself as a proselytizer or somebody who's trying to convince somebody to do something. Because on a certain level... Uh, I mean, I do advertise and stuff, so therefore you could say I'm, I'm trying to solicit people to do my classes. But on some level, in terms of self-change, you do not change anybody until they decide to change themselves. 
So, okay, so that means radical change in your behavior and thinking if you're a homeless person who, who's, who's at that point. You have to have humility and recognize where you are and then, uh, and then get, off, get off whatever your thing is and just start doing the things in your life. You know, get off the drugs, get off the alcohol, accept help. I knew some homeless people I taught in a, in a church once in Pasadena. It was a writing, writing for income class. So I teach a lot of things. Yeah. I taught Egyptology back then. I taught a Native American culture. I taught, but the survival classes are what I teach. And there was a... Um, plant identification is a huge part of Plant identification yeah. has been the biggest thing. There was a, the homeless people would sometimes wander into our classroom because it was upstairs from the shelter in the basement <clears throat> and ask for money. And... Um, and uh, in the class, there was this black woman that came and went in there, and came and asked one of the black women in the, my class for money. And she didn't, she didn't have any money. And there was a white woman there who gave, had a $10 bill because she could see this lady needed it. And the black homeless woman wouldn't take it because she was a white woman. And the black woman in my class said, you take it. You are in no position to act like you're uppity or like you can't take money from a white person. She's, what, what is your problem? You need the money. She's asking for it. And, and my friend Dorothea, she was so great. She just said, you know, and then she went to the side and talked with the woman. She said, you know, when you're, when you're down and out, who are you to pretend that you can't accept help from somebody who sincerely is trying to help you? So that's part of the mindset. We, you Did know, she take it? Of course. Of course she took it. You know, in the end. Uh, but, but our mindset is such that there, our ideas often keep us in, in poverty or keep us apart. You know, like our mindset of... I'm different than you, and you know um, we know that we know that nobody's that different. It doesn't matter what you're, you're, you're. We're different culturally, but race is somewhat of an illusion. We're far more alike than we are different. We're like I think I think uh, I think all humans are no more than a fraction of one percent DNA different, and right. we're far more alike than different. Well, especially when you consider how close we are to our ape ancestors as well. Yeah, we're there's like not one, that much. <laughs> there's I think one percent difference with the apes and the humans, but about a fraction of yeah. a percent with humans. So we make a big deal about nothing. We fight wars over it. We kill each other over it. So that's really the big problem with survival. It's not. It's our. It's our minds. It's not. Not lack of resources. Not lack of being able to do stuff. Right. So when you when you have a class, do you talk about these things with your students? How do you get them to? I should even ask: Is it your aim to ha- for them to have this shift in mindset? I mean, what are some of the things you talk about? And and do you see? I'm sorry to load on the questions, but do you see people have this kind of like a, epiphany? Do they really change their perspective? It really depends again on the individual. When you're ready to learn something and you're open to it, it seems like most people are exposed to something. There was this lady that I knew for years and years and years and years, and her whole thing was this certain metaphysical concepts, and she was wonderful on that, about how we're spiritual beings and blah, 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 the whole thing. Yeah. I, and I, I'm not diminishing it at all. And I would talk to her and say, yeah, whatever, you know, it's nice, that's good, I believe that too, because I, I, I was in no disagreement. And then one day she said, you know, I realize I'm here in Southern California, we might have water problems. You know, it's like all the things that I've been talking about, uh, and we you know, we have a big population. I said, you're just figuring that out? You're just now discovering that? And so she became very interested in what I taught. So it was like, you can tell, you can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Yeah, you, we might have major earthquakes here, but many people don't change behavior or thinking until something happens to them personally. So if I offer a class in how to identify wild plants, I'm not going to talk to you about how we have diminishing water and we have an increased population 
and how it's our state of mind that is the problem. Because then I'm, it's, that's bait and switch. I, I'm gonna, if, if I have a class on how to uh, make a fish trap, we're gonna make a fish trap. And you're gonna go home having known how to make a fish trap. And actually, what I, what I do, I often tell people though, you're probably, if you live in LA, when are you gonna need a fish trap? You can go to the big five and buy one for a couple of dollars. But suddenly now, with your own hands, you went into nature, you made, a, you made the frame of a fish trap, and you made cordage from plants that you found, and the mental activity of you going from zero to Z, you know, Z, from nothing to a, a functional item that you made from nature, you know, that's indescribable. That gives people a feeling of self-confidence. And often it's, it's the doing of the skill that changes your thinking first, right? And then, you know, little by little you realize, oh, you know, I could act, I, I, my, my, like my father, he used to say to me, I'd, I'd show him a wooden bowl that I made. It took six, seven hours of carving and cutting, and I always thought it was beautiful. It was a burrow from oak. And he'd look at it, he said, how long did it take? And I'd tell him, and he'd say, well, you know, at Kmart, cups are like 59 cents, plastic cups. Say, You're missing the point, Dad. And, and so, um, yes, you can buy all that stuff, and you could have more clutter. You could buy cheap cups and keep buying cheap cups forever. If that's if if your if your thought is all you need is a cup, my thought is I'm te- I'm not teaching people how to make a cup. I'm teaching people a skill that they can use for all sorts of things. I teach sewing classes, right? I teach uh, craft classes, weaponry classes. Even though I think that the average per- so some people think I'm teaching for the apocalypse, then you could get by. Hey, you probably could if you know to take these classes. But I'm hoping we won't have an apocalypse. If we change our behavior and use less and work together better, we won't have apocalypses. Apocalypses, you know, people say, oh, it's predicted. Predicted where? Oh, in the Bible. Where? We just passed through one that somebody said was in the Bible last September, another end of the world day. So I don't believe anything is written in stone. Nothing. The only thing that's, that's sure is that your choices have consequences. And collectively, national choices have consequences. So that's the closest I become to a, a crystal ball reader. That yeah. all, all choices have consequences. But when I, 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 my eyes glass over and my mind shuts down, when people tell me, oh, the world is predicted to come to an end now, you know, in January or January of 2019, you know, look at all the signs, oh, baloney. All that stuff is, is meaningless. Guys who focus on dates, and I'm not sure what the end of the world means anymore. I guess it really means the end of Western civilization or the end of most life, like the flood supposedly was. Yeah. If a comet hit the earth, it would be devastating, of course. We know that. And survival skills would come in handy, but that's assuming you live. So I, I know, and there's also this arrogance to it because a lot of people come to this doomsday mentality of, well, I'm going to be the lucky one who's going yeah. to survive. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I was on Doomsday Prepper. That was the National Geographic or Nat Geo Doomsday Prepper show. Yeah. I, I watched my episode. It was kind of corny, the way it was edited. But there were people on the show who, if you're really trying to learn skills... For a, a serious emergency, let's say what happened in Puerto Rico, or what just happened in Florida I mean, or Texas. I, I think it's on everyone's mind because it's, yeah. it it seems like it's all around us. Being Oaxaca, Houston, you know. But you're not going to get it from Doomsday Prepper. But we're also sitting here too, and like they're the staging area for the Mount Wilson fire. Is right, right here, right us. now, right, right. Yeah, I mean, people people can feel it. Things happen all the time, and so it's good to not be complacent. I mean, you, you, you know, people, what, com- what takes most people's time in life is just staying alive, producing the income you need in, a, in an economic world, taking care of your family, trying to do things that are fulfilling. But you have to be aware that 
dramatic changes they they can and do occur. Like if you're uh, up uh, in California here, look at all the neighborhoods where you lost your home. So suddenly now you're scrambling around. You put all your life, all your stuff into that house. Now you're scrambling around. So again, I always say your skills and your relationships with other people are far more important than stuff. On your on your deathbed, are you going to think? Are you really going to think? God, look at the fantastic furniture that I acquired in my 23-room house. Incredible furniture. The envy of the town. No, you're going to probably think about your children. The time the, you didn't the, spend with them. The things that you, yeah. the things that you did with uh, your family. You could probably have regrets, but it's going to be yeah. about people and experiences. And I always, you remember the poet Bukowski? I think was his name. Yeah. The drunk. I call him the drunken poet. I was never a great fan of him, but he was actually pretty profound in some ways. And he he would one of his st- quotes. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but if people realized that we all die, you don't take all this stuff with you, we would treat each other a lot better. If you realize that you could die, you know, like my, my brother, he was, uh, he was uh, hiking down in the San Gabriel River. He was a great outdoorsman, dropped dead, literally just dropped dead. So at least I say he got his wish that he didn't want to be uh, slowly vegetating in some hospital room. And he was, a, was he a young man? Uh, I, I think he was 58 when he died, 58, 59. My sister died in her late 50s, you know, so I've outlived them so far. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think it, most people just don't want to talk about it. I, I think, well... But think about it. Everybody dies. Everybody, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something that I, I've been told, because I wrote a book about death, too. That's yeah, strictly, I know you did. So. That's strictly an e-book. So, you know, I... What's the name of the book for our listeners? It's called Till Death Do Us Part with a Question Mark, and how Dolores and I learned some of life's most important lessons... From death, and it was really about uh, how we would have death seminars, how we would have uh, sem- uh, uh, ceremonies for dogs, for relatives, just on because the the, ser- the 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 focus on death isn't about death; it's about life. Does life go on? Uh, look, look how quickly life can end. Uh, look at all the regrets you have if somebody's dead and you didn't get to say "I love you." Or I just wanted to talk, you know. So I, we always encourage people to do those things while you're alive, not wait till you're dead. But a friend of mine said to me, man, you're so preoccupied with death. And I said, I'm not preoccupied with death at all. I'm preoccupied with life. The whole point is to live a better life, just being, being aware that you don't have forever. Like even with all of, the, all of the food storage stuff and all of the survival skills, you're still going to die eventually. So what is it about? It's about living better now. It's about living a better life. Living a frugal life, to me, is, 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 is not being preoccupied with material stuff. Material abundance gets you nowhere. I mean, look at the people that you respect in the world and in your, in your life. Does, does their monetary level have any effect on whether you love them or respect them? I would say that it has no bearing whatsoever. Just because somebody's rich doesn't make them bad. That's one of the big, uh, a, a lot of the liberal, uh, young, especially young people, they like to say, well, if you're wealthy, you, you had to be a crook. That's not true at all. And uh, poor people, a poor person could be as much as a crook, right? And, and an evil person. And, and, and just the reverse is true. Somebody who's very poor can be highly elevated, highly, you know, you know, a great person to know, and a wealthy person could be too. So monetary equivalence has nothing. It's how they treat people, how they live their life. It's not about the money at all, you know. So but the richest person will die, and guess what? Uh, they don't take any of that stuff with them. All of their, all of the the, uh, the the vultures that surrounded them their whole life will come and feed off of all the the crumbs of their estate. 
but but they don't take it with them. So I'm just my point is that if you don't focus for your whole life on the stuff that you think you need for survival, you might die tomorrow. That doesn't mean don't think about the next decade, you know, for your children and the society. You should think hundreds of years down the road. But it doesn't, you know, but respect the earth, protect the earth, don't waste things, don't overuse things. Think about the next generation. You know, live, try to, it's like so many people said, was it Gandhi or said it or some famous person? Just try to be, be what you think the world, what is, what is that phrase I'm trying to think of? Oh, be, be, yeah, like be the example you want to be, be in. Yeah, just, yeah, just, just live it, live it Gandhi. now. Try to, yeah, it was Gandhi, try to be it right now. Don't keep thinking about some mythical future world, some mythical paradise. Just try to do it now. Like one of be the, the change you want to see. Be in the, the world. change you want to see in the world. And I'm, I'm not claiming I do it, but I try to do it. One of the changes that I made in my life, uh, my brother who passed away, I'll use him as an example. I gave him a, one Christmas, I gave him a hand drill that I made out of some twigs down in the. I collected myself, I shaped them, and it's a primitive way to make fire, and I thought he would enjoy it. And his, his response was, how much did you pay for it? Because he paid for something that he gave me. And I said, what does that matter? Why does that make any difference? And so he, he just kind of tossed it to the side. So that was the last year I ever gave him a Christmas gift. And I told my whole family, I'm not doing that anymore. My father once said to me, you're a bad son. And he got over that eventually. But I said, no, I'm just not doing it anymore. And I don't want your junk either. I don't want the stuff that you, go, that you dutifully go out <clears throat> and buy for me as a social construct that you think comprises commemorating Christmas. What's it have to do with anything? I do not yeah. want your junk. Keep it. Give it to the poor. Don't don't waste your money because I'm not going to spend money on you. I'll spend time with you. Right. I'll have meals with you, but I'm not going to commemorate Christmas that way anymore. Right. Because and I don't. It, but so it, but, and it sounds like you know you had this really different mindset and this set of values in your family. But you were telling me about how your family growing up really had. This is why you sort of became the person you you are because they did value things and they didn't waste things. Were you the outlier in your family? On uh, you know like what in terms of like how your perspective on the world. Do you know what people say when we all got together? Uh, uh, my my, uh, my brother Richard who passed away. There's Thomas. There's David who was a Marine. My oldest brother Gilbert and my sister Margaret. They thought we were the oddest bunch that we were all so very different. <laughs> and so I don't know that we were all outliers in a sense. All right. In but a different way. In terms of, you know, how Richard, you focus on self-reliance and minimalism and not consuming. Yeah, Richard was probably the closest to me. Yeah. Uh, because he was really into the outdoor and hiking. And uh, I, I mean, we all had things in common. But I, I think that I tried to take it to heart. You know, like we, 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 we were brought up as Catholics. Uh, I like to say I'm a little C Catholic today, meaning I'm not really part of the church. Catholic just means universal. So I could say I'm a pagan as well as a Catholic, yeah. little C. But my mother took the uh, religious uh, thing very seriously and, and uh, in terms of uh, treating people well and uh, you know, not just going to church on Sunday, just trying to live that life. So I always thought the Christmas thing was very odd, even the Easter thing, the way people do it. What's all this candy got to do with Jesus? has nothing to do with them, of course. And so I said, well, why do we do it? Well, everybody does it. And I said, yeah, but why do we do it? You know, we're just going along with the mob. And so I don't, I, 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 I always found a big dichotomy with the way, the way people try to happily celebrate what might be actually a very solemn event, might be something good for learning. So I, I sort of uh, stopped going to family gatherings because they were shouting matches with the TV loud and we'd get into fights. And I just stopped going to those. 
And, and, and over the years, I go to more solemn events, not necessarily solemn, but where we talk about the meaning of the day. Right. And, 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 that, that, and, and food may be there, but it's not a focus. So uh, it's, it's, a non, it's moving away from just a materialistic uh, eating a lot of food and watching TV and slapping each other on the back kind of a thing. And, and again, my father called me a bad son for that because I wouldn't go to the family gatherings. But I would, go to, I would go visit him the day after and chat with him. And to me, that was always more meaningful than everybody yelling. And I don't know what everybody's family's like, but I hear that a lot of families are like that. You have a lot of food once a year at the Thanksgiving or the Christmas, and you have no idea what it's about. And then, you, you know, you get drunk or you get in a fight or whatever. Yeah. Who, who we, needs it? We do not have a lot of yelling in our family, but it has, and I'm Jewish, so, yeah. you know, we don't yeah. do the whole Christmas thing. Uh, you did Hanukkah a little while ago. We do Hanukkah. Well, actually, you know, my family's mixed now, so we do, yeah. you know, the younger generation yeah. is doing Christmas and Hanukkah. Yeah. Um, but it has, it's been very hard to wean my family off the materialism. But yet, as life, what's interesting is, so, like, we were the first ones when we had kids that were just like, please, just like their seven grandparents, stop giving them so much stuff. And like, for a present, if you really want to give them something, give them lessons to something. Or exactly. Like, give us a plane ticket so we yeah. can come visit you in Chicago. Yeah, I'm with that. Give right. them something meaningful that they use, not more stuff. Right, and, and especially now, it is a constant stream of just crap coming in from mm -hmm. kids at school. It's like every time there's a holiday, they're just sent home with a bag of like pencils and candy and every time there's a birthday and it doesn't mean anything to them and I think so as our lives are getting more and more complicated no one has time anymore because we're all spending this time checking emails and they are my family I have seen this big shift in my family that like no one has time to buy stuff anymore and it doesn't mean anything and so we are like the most valuable thing is spending that time mm -hmm, together mm -hmm. but it's taken it's taken a long time and and you know they still do just like how they <laughs> express their love is through buying stuff and materials and it's it's, it's understandable it's yeah. a, I mean it's it's good to give stuff it's harder it comes from a good place it's harder yeah. to make everything and give stuff but um, when we when we speak of survival and you, you asked me earlier do I get into all of these other issues right sometimes I do it just depends but if you talk about survival like there's a guy that said to me I have political stuff in the back of how to survive anywhere I have stuff about economics and uh, stuff about how to live, principles of living, and some nutrition stuff. He said that has nothing. They said that shouldn't be in a survival book. I said, if then you write your own book. You don't tell me what goes in my <laughs> book. If you don't think it belongs there, don't read it. Why? But why didn't he think it belonged in there? Because Doesn't he he thinks it's, it's all Boy Scout skills. And and guess what? If if you're if you're eating if you have poor nutrition, how long will you live? You have to necessarily consider all things when you when you get interested in the topic of survival. Your health is the foundation of everything. So all the candy that everybody's eating at Halloween, at Christmas, at Easter, and all this, that's the leading uh, culprit for diabetes. And the, the highly processed sugar that we're getting in everything. So you, people want to, I mean, you should, you should learn about basic nutrition just to stay healthy, just so you can do things, so you can function and, and eat properly. So I have that in this book. I have um, uh, economic issues. Like how can you how can you uh, separate economics from survival in today's world? You can't, and and so you're either a victim of it, or you know you're you don't want to be homeless. So how do you creatively earn the income that you need and make your way in the world? You you can't pretend that that's not a factor. Right. So I I go into the four what I call the four illusions of money, 
and uh, just different creative ways to make money in the How to Survive Anywhere book. Can that's you just give small. us a little rundown of what are, you don't give us four, but what are some of the illusions of money that people listening to this will say, oh, I never sure thought of I, that. Let me see if I have it here. Maybe it's in... Uh, Sorry to put you on the spot. I know what it's like to write a book and then not remember what page you... <laughs> well, no, I don't, I don't remember anything, actually. Um, <clears throat> four illusions of money. It was from a lecture that was originally published in the Coevolution Quarterly, and I, m- I more or less used it as a lecture basis over the years and uh, as the point of many articles. But it isn't to say that money is not important. Uh, uh, there, was a, there was a talk show host that used to say, uh, if I act like money is important, it's because I place it right up there uh, with oxygen as a necessity, right? So, um, but he says it's, you want to use it as a tool. So I'm, I'm, I'm never implying that it's not important, but it's, it's w- worth looking at when you do things for money that you wouldn't do otherwise. Like if, if, if I ask people in a class, I'm giving a lecture about money, I, I want you all to list your goals in life. And you, you, people will list, some people don't have a goal, they'll list, I want to make more money. I said, you cannot list money as a goal. You can list your actual goals. And, you know, if people have jobs, sometimes they're hard-pressed. I want to pay off my house, I want to do this. There's something that will involve money. They're often hard-pressed to, to create goals like, I want to visit the pyramids of Egypt, or I want to be fluent in Italian. What's the money for? What's yeah. It, yeah, what's it So you have to list your goals. And so finally I pull teeth and I get people to list goals. It can't be, I want more money. And, um, and then, um, okay, pick out two. Everybody's picking out at least two goals. Okay, I want you to list, now these are, this, is that a real goal or is that just good intention? No, no, so it has to be a real goal that I really want to do. Uh, and then they write them down and, you know, it might be taking a trip somewhere. Okay, then, why haven't you done that? I don't want to know the answer, but I want you to list three steps towards achieving that goal. And they cannot involve money. Okay, so then there's, you know, well, what, well, if I had the money, I would do it. Okay, but they, your three steps cannot. So, in other words, if you're really thinking it through, there are some non-monetary choices that you can make that help you achieve your goals. Money can always accelerate the achievement of a goal once you've clearly defined that goal. You can move in that direction. But there are people that have done so much with so little because they had a well-defined goal and they got people to help them. They borrowed things. They got free things. They understood the, 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 what the society offers, you know, depending on the goal. Yeah. So um, that, that's one that, I, okay, I, you know, I, I, I can't do what I want to do because I need more money. And that's a bit of an illusion. Yeah, because you um, can play that game forever. People will respect me more if I have more money demonstrably false. People might think that. I need money for my old age. That's a big one. Yeah. When I gave a lecture once, boy, there was people, there were people, it was in a, in a, a like an auditorium, there were a few older guys that were yelling at each other and fighting. And I said, wait a second, I never said you don't need money. Just remember that. I didn't say you didn't need money. This is an illusion that I want you to shed that you need money for your old age. What do you really need? Let's list those things. Yeah, money can achieve those. So if you see, the point was we're, we're constantly pursuing money. And I think 100 or 150 years ago, people did pursue friendships, relationships, skills. They would even acquire things that would help them make or do things because that was 
what they were trying to do. Ways to make or process food, for example. So you need money. Uh, it's just that what you really want is to maybe change your behavior and your character so you're the kind of person people want to be around and work with. Because people, if they have no children, they might say, well, when I'm old, what's going to happen to me? Will, be I, will, be, will I be on the street? So-and-so has 10 children. And they, they cater to them and do and that's you know there's there's something to be said for that but I'm not going to have ten children just so because I'm worried about what happens when I'm old, right? Right. And and there's a there's a few others so it's a whole like a whole talk that I give about just having a uh, you know like when people say the um, uh, money is the root of all evil that's not the original quote the love of money is the root of all evil they say. Wow. It's not not money. Money is just a tool. Yeah. You well, all. I, but I think part of the problem is is that it has become the only tool in our culture, especially like when you look around you in Los Angeles. And I think it's so interesting that you You're do right. your work in LA because most people, they could not survive. It's their only means of getting food, getting shelter, you know, getting friends, uh, getting around town. I, I mean, people have forgotten how to even like walk we've anymore. You know what I mean? And <laughs> like, so, and so, the, so th- the thing to remember, the world that we live in, we've created. I, I, I always encourage people study other cultures, uh, not to go into the past, but how to look optimistically to the future. Yeah, <clears throat> there were other cultures that um, we're not sure if they had money. Big civilizations, they had some kind of barter or trade, and there was some kind of value system, and there were hierarchies, and there was political leaders and religious leaders and shaman and the whole thing, tradesmen and so forth. But we're not sure really what they did with money. Big, well, large civilizations. I think, yeah. I mean, I think money as we know it only is five thousand years old. I don't know. But there, before that, there was no real monetary system. Five thousand years is a long time, but I, I think most cultures today have some money, but. I don't, I'm not offering a quick solution to no money yeah. because I don't have a, a quick solution. But I'm, I, I often think back, how did these groups survive? Number one, you didn't survive on your own. The Ra- Rambo is a myth. The, self-sufficiency the, is, is, do you think that's a myth? No, so, I, I didn't say self-sufficiency. I said Rambo is Rambo a myth. Rambo is a myth. Okay, because so tell Ra- me more. Because Rambo is, I'm doing it all by myself. I know so many guys that say they do everything all by themselves. I say, oh yeah, you're using this tool that you, this company made. And you're using this, uh, you know, they're online or whatever. I said, how many people do you think uh, uh, enable you to be online? What infrastructure? What if that infrastructure to be online didn't exist? You're not, you're not totally self-sufficient. It's good that you're not, you're, that you're not having everybody do everything for you. It's, it's, it's within a matter of a degree. Yeah. But Rambo was a guy that ran in the woods with no shirt, and he needed nothing. He suddenly had a log cabin. He could get a pig for dinner if he wants. The, 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 the tribal people. Who did? Uh, who have lived off the land all around the world, in different cultures, and in some extinct cultures, usually because of lack of water. But they, they never. Well, I shouldn't say never because I'm not there. But the the idea of me as an individual functioning apart from the society was not a concept. You were part of the group, right? And so, what is our group in our society? It's it's loosely the family which is always at odds with each other. Barely anymore. Barely. And so it's become the company or the corporation or the group, the, what, what maybe a social group that you work with. Yeah. And that really doesn't function uh, as, uh, as well as uh, 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 the tribal society. And I, I'd have to say that, it, you know, I, I am not optimistic about the way if, if society is going all monetized 
everything is about money. Uh, I, I don't know. The, the, the population of L.A., they say it's steadily 5,000, 5% every year, L.A. County. And even the census predicts a, a down dip in a certain point, probably because it become too unlivable for too many people. So people will find alternatives. It's kind of a, um, you know, like in the if you can think of rural people in the past, you went into the urban centers because that's where all the action was. You did your trading and so forth. And and it, 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 there's a point of uh, diminished returns where you go back and you find the remote places again, or you find, go into a small town. I mean, I think the sm small town. You, you can live a good life and and be totally fulfilled if you know what the per your point of life is uh, and and, and it, whereas in a big city right you, I, it's it's probably wrong for me to make a value judgment but the reality is it's 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 um it's forcing people to live more like animals in a monetized world to be in in heavily populated cities and some of the cities where there's uh, work for it like in, I, I saw some images in China in Hong Kong. I mean, do you ever seen images of some of those cities? People well, yeah, and I've, I've been, well, it's a little different than China, but I was in Taiwan last year, mm -hmm. and uh, I know a lot of people who live and work in China. So if, you're, if you have, don't have the means to pay for your place, there are some squatters' villages in China that you think these are middle-aged middle, middle ages dungeons or something. These are people, people who do live that way. So we create the world that we live in through, through the, how we think about things, how we choose to interact with others, and um, by our choosing to always have more and more children. Because overpopulation, it, you, could, you could say you could take the whole population of the world and if everybody got along and lived in this tall apartment, you could live in the state of Kansas. Right. And farm the rest of it. But people all want to be here in the West Coast because it's wonderful, or on the East Coast people want to be in certain places and so we heavily populate certain areas and we make you know if we live a certain way they can be okay up to a point they can be sustainable but you you have to acknowledge the limits of where you're living like here in LA where, where we're at we have enough water and it's this should be always on your mind if you live here we have enough water locally for about one-fifth of the population as long as the aqua... I'm surprised it's that much to be honest well, yeah we have almost yeah. that yeah about that much one wow. about one-fifth to, to one quarter of our local uh, water needs can be found locally. But that's 75% of the people who wouldn't have water if all the aqueducts stopped running or if they were blown up. Right. Or if there was a really, that, a really a severe drought. It doesn't sound like you're too optimistic. I'm very optimistic. You uh, are. I'm very optimistic. I think people can make choices and changes, and there's actually a lot of good signs. Uh, you know, with even with DWP wanting to, uh, you know, not force... That's but the Department of Water and Power. For the those Depar of you the yeah. Department of Water yeah. Power in L.A. They, they, and, and Mayor Garcetti, they're trying to encourage people to use less water. They got it down to... How much do you think they got it down to for the city of L.A.? Now, this is per capita. They got it down to 131 gallons per person per day. Isn't that shocking? Well, and the, I mean, this I mean, doesn't even take into account the agricultural use of Doesn't take into water. account yeah. agriculture or commercial use of water. We use a vast amount of water. So the idea that we want water for lawns is ludicrous. So it's good that they're promoting not having lawns, having gardens, having fruit trees. Uh, they're slowly coming around to uh, gray water recycling. It should be easier and, and, and they should ban all of the detergents and soaps that, that would uh, make your soil uh, toxic. Those shouldn't be available. They shouldn't, I mean, in a, in a society that knows it cannot be sustainable by using certain things, and they have to start putting their water 
back into the soil for, to recharge the groundwater, you have to change your detergent habits. And then toilets. They're not, that's not even on the board yet, but they should start having compost toilets. So the water use can go way down, way, way down. And, and, and there is, there is a, a trend in that direction, but it's still a very small trend. And there's still a greater and greater population that wants to come here. And, and uh, in, you know, maybe not in Nevada where there's not many people living or in the, the uh, plains of the United States, but in big cities, the overpopulation is what drives all of the other problems. It drives the, the ecologic challenges of the ecosystem just to provide for the people. You, you have more, that is that will be the problem of the future. I don't I don't think that um, I mean there always, there's wars don't reduce population much in terms of population reduction. Yeah, but, temporarily but, they do. Yeah, yeah. But what what has always reduced population and it has to do with too many people living too close together, often in unsanitary conditions, are, are various diseases. So there's there's plagues and diseases that have wiped out parts of Europe and large you know whole towns. You know, over over the centuries, over the past centuries, yeah, there, we're not out of the woods with with that by any means. So, will you stay in L.A.? Uh, L- What's L- keeping you? Here? L.A. is my home. Yeah. I was born here. I regard it as my home. Uh, if I had a better reason to go somewhere else, for some reason, I might. But I. And yet, pe- it's such a different place. Than, I mean, when people you first always ask me, it probably felt like a a small community. Well, it kind of was, but. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I have nowhere to run away to. I'm not in the mode of running away. And I, I do my, I'm able to do my work here. If it became a hellhole and I couldn't live here anymore, perhaps I would go somewhere else. But Where would you go? I have no idea. <laughs> I would, I mean, if I had, if so I could. you haven't thought about that if scenario? There, uh, oh yeah, I've thought about it a lot. Okay. There's a lot of nice places to go to. But remember, the purpose of life is not to enjoy good weather or to enjoy a scenic surroundings where you live. So I'm not thinking, like, I, like when I was on the farm, I thought this was very peaceful and idyllic. And I could raise food and live here, and I probably could have. But I was very unfulfilled living there, you know, with one or two other people. It, was, it just wasn't my thing. Yeah. Uh, there, the, the world is full of beautiful places. So um, I'm not really actively thinking about going somewhere else. Uh, L.A. is my home, so I'll probably always live here. So while we're walking, tell us about how people can take your classes and follow you, get in touch with you. The website is schoolofselfreliance.com, and it's self-reliance. Or just, uh, they can look up my name, Christopher Nergesh, it's on Facebook or on, on the website. That's the proper Hungarian pronunciation. Nergesh is Hungarian, yeah. yes. N-Y-E-R-G-E-S. Okay. A friend of mine came up with, uh, everybody knows how to spell the normal Christopher, but the last name is always misspelled. But if you can if you can remember, not your everyday regular guy eating salad, then you can spell my name. <laughs> right? Okay. The first letter of each word. Hi. Hi. Hello. If you can remember, what did I say? Not your regular guy eating salad. Not your every regular guy eating salad. Not your everyday regular guy. <laughs> you skip one of the words and you spell my name wrong. Okay, not your nice. everyday regular guy eating salad. Okay. But they can um, they can go to the the website or look on Facebook and find me. I have classes a couple times a week, plus I go out to schools and school groups and uh, do special events, that kind of thing. I teach at Pasadena City College also. Plus they can get books, read out of books. I post blogs all the time. How do you feel about social media? You said you're on Facebook. How do I feel about it? Um, 
Well, if the only way to advertise what you're doing and share things with the world was newspapers, and you'd ask me how I felt about newspapers, I would say that yes, they exist, right? They are. And so that's how I, social media, I don't, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs. It's, a, it's what everybody's using. So it's hard to avoid it and function in the world. Yeah, it's a good answer. I'm thinking over here we might see something different. Is this part of your daily routine, just spending some time walking? Uh, in not every day. Yeah. But sometimes I come over here to photograph things or to collect things. These are elderberry trees here. Oh, wow. This is an elder tree. All the new shoots would have been used for uh, low guns or pipe stems or flutes and things like that. And then it has, of course, the berries in the springtime. Yeah. Elderberries being used a lot in medicine these days, yeah. like cough and flu prevention, right? This one's a wild cherry. So elder is a native, by the way. This is a native cherry. And so the leaves are mildly toxic. Wow. I collected a gallon or so of these fruits, maybe more this year, for the flesh, but mostly for the seed. Because the native people would uh, cook the seed to get rid of the uh, cyanide then make a, like a mush out of it it's yeah. like eating refried beans in a way wow uh, and that's you know i mean it's taste it's not it doesn't really taste like refried beans but it ends up ends up having that texture when you're done so again it's very dry right now and they've come through here with weed whackers because it's so dry because they're worried about fires. Yeah. Yeah. Cactus. Here's mustard my daughter loves to point out. Oh yeah, there's your common mustard yep. from Europe. So you can eat the yellow flower, you can eat the greens. It's amazing how much kids love, you know, identifying. Like they'll just, <laughs> you tell them once and they can spot it everywhere. Yeah. This is mustard too, by the way. Oh, wow. That's the old seed, all the seeds are there. Yeah. And this one, do you know? Oh, this is poison oak. Poison oak. Yeah. Poison oak is all over this area. Yep. So, Do not um, eat poison oak for our listeners. Okay, look at that. Uh, look at the wood rat nest there in the middle. Oh, wow. Yeah, they often do it in the middle of poison oak for some reason. So, by the way. That's fascinating. Native people uh, used to eat the young leaves to develop immunity. Now, I, I remember reading how they made baskets and things. So, when I did research at the Southwest Museum, I learned that they, the native people would eat it, you know, usually in the spring and often in their acorn mush. And they, it's believed that that's how they became immune. I've been doing that for probably 35 or so years. Yeah. Because I used to get it really, really bad. Wow. And I, the best thing was aloe vera. I mean, I've tried every herbal remedy under the sun. Once I, once I stopped doing the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, steroids from the doctor for, for poison oak. You know, they give you the, uh, the sprays and the pills. Yeah. I've never but, had poison oak, but yeah, I know. Well, it's, it's good. But I don't get it anymore. So you don't. I eat it every year. I don't recommend it because then people will say if they get a bad reaction that it's because of me. Well, yeah, of but course. But, it, you can't but say it, that. it can work with some people and not necessarily with everybody. So it's like the original vaccine in a way. I suppose it would yeah. be. Um, there, it, I was told that although I've never seen it, or I guess that you used to tolerance. be able to buy pills of the dried and pressed poison oak. 
and that nobody nobody sells it anymore because sometimes there's mixed reactions. Right, but no one talks about the mixed reactions to all the steroids. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it can be the really dangerous. Bad. The dangerous stuff from nature. So the cactus pads here can be eaten. We peel them and we eat them raw or cooked. What kind of cactus is this? This is a common prickly pear cactus. Oh, it is. It's uh, Opuntia ficus indica, I believe. So uh, any of the young ones we peel back. See, I like, I burn them off because of the spines. So I, I, I hate hassling them. Okay, so here's the lamb's quarter I was talking about. This is like uh, our pigweed or goosefoot. This is, these are European natives. Okay. It's highly nutritious. The seeds are almost a complete protein when it's old enough to produce the seed. This guy here with the round leaves, this is the lamb's quarter. This guy with the round leaves, and look at the bottom of the leaves, purple. Yeah. That's amaranth. Oh, wow. This is one of a European amaranth, amaranthus retroflexus. Gets bitter, so you have to, um, when it gets older, you need to uh, cook it. Let me take a picture of that. Okay. Yeah, and that's like one of the super grains that everyone's talking yeah, about right well, now. Yeah, well, they're not talking about this species. Okay. But the amaranth seeds are quite good. And then right here, growing next to the amaranth and the sow thistle, is this guy. And does that look like the chickweed we saw? It does look like it. Now what do you see? Oh, milky white. It's not chickweed. So that's the um, common spurge. Yeah. So, so you, you don't eat see. this. Yeah, right. Okay. If you ate a little bit by mistake, it wouldn't hurt you. But if you ate enough, you would vomit. Okay, we don't want to vomit. Most, mostly you don't. Wow. Okay. So that's good. You got three or four things. Yeah, but, this is fantastic. But this is what this whole field is like when we get rain. There's a bigger sow thistle now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been Thank you. so amazing. I'm looking forward to taking one of your classes. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.